0: Hello and welcome to Through the Bible with Les Feldick, an inspirational and informative half-hour of insight into the heart of Scripture. In addition to teaching the Bible, Les is a full-time rancher, having a down-to-earth practical teaching style that makes the Bible come to life. All programs are available on audio tape, videotape, and in printed form. At the end of the program, there will be an address where you can contact the ministry. And now, here's Les Feldick with today's lesson.
1: Now if you'll turn over to Luke 18, there's a series of verses that we've looked at before, but... uh... I have to constantly remind myself that we have new listeners coming in every week. And, uh, you know, I'm so often feel, I guess I so often feel guilty that if I repeat things too often, it'll, it'll become mundane. But on the other hand, some of these people are only hearing this now for the first time. And so Luke 18, beginning with verse 31, and again, it's the same time setting. Jesus again is speaking. "...as he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem." Now this will be for the last time. This will be for the crucifixion. "...we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and he shall be mocked, spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, put him to death." And the third day he shall rise again. Now, Jesus is speaking of himself. Now, look at the next verse. Verse 34, And they, the twelve again, understood none of these things. And this saying was, and there's the word again, hid from them. That is, by a sovereign God. It wasn't time for them to understand. So these things were hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. They had no idea. That in a few days that he would be crucified and placed in a tomb. Alright, now if you'll come on over to John's Gospel, chapter 20. And even after the crucifixion, they are now at the tomb on the resurrection morning. And the scripture again makes it so plain that they didn't know. John 20. And drop all the way down to verse 9 for sake of time. The setting here, of course, is Peter and John running to the sepulcher after Martha had told them that it was empty. And so they are amazed. They're aghast, and they look in. And then verse 9, For as yet they, even Peter and John, they knew not the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, my question always is, if they had no idea that he was going to be crucified and that he was going to be raised from the dead, how in the world could they have been preaching our gospel back there in his earthly ministry? Well, there was no way. And yet this is what's been shoved down our throat, at least from my point of view over the years, that the gospel as we know it began back there as soon as Jesus came on the scene. But it's just impossible because no one understood that he was going to die. The prophets had written it. Absolutely, it was back there. The Old Testament was full of his death, burial, and resurrection. Some people have counted. I think there's 360-some distinct prophecies concerning his first coming, including his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension, his coming again. It was all back there but he was in such veiled language they didn't know what it, was un- what it was talking about. The prophets themselves could understand. And so here it's so, so plainly put that these very men that were the closest to him, such as Peter and John, had no idea that he was going to die and after he was dead, they had no idea he was going to be resurrected. They just hadn't been able to comprehend it. All right, now I'd like to take you a little further into the New Testament. Go all the way to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I think this puts it also so appropriately. First Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> where Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter two, and I'm going to start verse seven. 1 Corinthians chapter two, verse seven. I always have to make comment once in a while. When I think of things. I had one gentleman call, and he didn't think I should take the time for letting you people look up the references. And he says, "My, that thirty minutes goes so fast." But if he could only see how many people have written, and one gentleman even showed me as he came to one of the classes how that they sit and they follow every one of these references with us, and they write them down, and, and they, they make notes of them. My one fellow came to McAllister class, and he had all of the references over I don't know how many programs all thumb-notched here in his, in his Bible. Well, he couldn't do that, you see, if I'd have it all canned and put them out just as fast as I could read them. So I purposely slow things down, So, and give you time to look them up here in the studio, hopefully our folk out in the living room will do the same thing because I don't want people to lean on what I say. All I want folk to know is what does the book say. And this is what counts. All right, now Paul writing to the Corinthians then in chapter 2 beginning with verse 7. He writes, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now there's that secret, there's that hiding aspect again that God has hidden some of these things. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, and I think Paul is just being, uh, less than, what shall I say, proud of his own efforts, and so he uses the plural pronoun, but I'm sure he's speaking of himself. He could just as well have said, unto my glory. But now in verse 8, this wisdom that has now been revealed to the Apostle Paul, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what? They didn't know. Now remember, as we've been... I can come back with me to Matthew 26... And you know, I've been stressing ever since we came into the New Testament that the whole reason for Christ performing all these miracles and signs was to prove to the nation of Israel who He was. That He was the Christ. He was the promised Messiah. And that all they had to do was just believe that. That was their That was their article of faith, if I may put it that way. And we've shown that in in previous programs, how that Jesus asked the twelve, again, just shortly before his crucifixion, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And all they said, Some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus came back again. Now, this is back in Matthew, I think, 16. And he said, But whom do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then Peter spoke up. He's always the spokesman. And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what I always put behind that. Period. Period. He doesn't say the one who died for me and rose from the dead. Martha, at the death of Lazarus, weeping and in sorrow because the Lord didn't come quick enough to, to spare him. You know, Jesus said, Oh, he'll rise again. And she said, Oh, I know at the last day. But then you go down a verse or two and uh, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, believest thou this? And she says, yes, I believe thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's all they were expected to believe. That's all they were expected to confess because that's what he had revealed. And then you come all the way into Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip shows him out of Isaiah 53 who the prophet was talking about. And he explains that it was this Jesus who had now gone up and down the highways and byways of Israel, proving who he was. And again, Philip brings the eunuch to the same place. Do you believe this? And what was his confession? Yes, I believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was their profession of faith. And that was all still under the law. All right, but now we're coming up to Jerusalem, and it's the final days leading up to the crucifixion. Everything is getting ready, of course, for the feast, the week of Passover. All right, chapter 26 of Matthew now, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now, those are the ones that we talked about in the last few programs, which were prophecy. Prophecy where he laid out all the things that would come to pass before he would come and set up his kingdom. Then in chapter 26, reading on in verse 1, And when he had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, And they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day. In other words, during this whole week of feast is what it really amounted to. It wasn't just one day. It was was the whole week of unleavened bread. Not on the feast day, lest there should be an uproar among the people. But you see, the sovereign God was in control here because, again, I have to take you back, go all the way back to Psalms. Chapter 2, because in God's sovereign plan, there was only one way for Christ to be put to death, and that had to be at the hands of not just the Jew, which it would have been had the high priest let the people kill him. It couldn't be at the hand of just the Jew. It had to also involve the Gentiles in order to fulfill explicitly Psalms chapter 2. You all with me? Verse 1. Psalms chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage? Now, who are the heathen in Scripture? Gentiles, the non-Jew. And the people. Who are they? Jews, see? So now you got the whole human race involved. you got the Gentile world as well as the nation of Israel. And they imagine a vain thing. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves. Now, we know it was Rome. David, of course, didn't realize that as he wrote this. But now we know that the kings of the earth at that time were the Caesars and uh, the rulers of Rome. They set themselves, but not just the Gentile rulers, but who else? The rulers. Now, who are they referred to? The religious rulers of Israel, see? And so again, now you have the Gentile rulers which, of course, was Rome, and the religious rulers of Israel, they take consul... What's the next word? Together. Now, that's all important. It wasn't just a Jewish phenomenon. It wasn't just a Roman thing. Prophecy had dictated that they would work hand in glove to reject the king, and so have... And so we have it as we come then into the gospel account. All right, come back to Matthew 26 once again. Verse 5 again, So they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now we'll be pointing it out, if not in this half hour, in one of the next ones. I hope you all realize that the Sabbath day, the Saturday, was not a day of sacrifice. Never in Israel's history did they sacrifice animals on the Sabbath. Now, I know a lot of us have gotten the idea that the Sabbath was the day of worship and sacrificing and ritual. No, No, it wasn't. There is no record that they ever killed an animal on the Saturday or the Sabbath day. And uh, consequently, the Passover, as we're going to be looking at it, could not have been a Saturday Passover, because that would have flown in the face of everything that took place before. Now, this is going to probably shock a few of you, but I do these things to get people to dig. You, You go back in the Old Testament, you'll never find that the Jews offered animal sacrifice on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest, not a day of worship. It was a day of rest. And that's why they weren't even to pick up sticks, let alone carry an animal up and have it sacrificed. So anyway, we'll, we'll be looking at that more in detail when, uh, when we get a little further along. All right, so now when Jesus, verse 6, was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment. Now, again, I want to point out that in these final days leading up to the crucifixion, I'm not going to take time in this program. This 30 minutes goes too fast. But if you'll, in your own study, will use all the Gospels, all four of them, and begin to pick out every time he goes back to Bethany for the night. He spends his night in Bethany, which of course is just outside the city of Jerusalem, and then he goes back into the temple again the next day. And that's his schedule throughout those days leading up to his crucifixion. So here again, he's back in Bethany for the evening, and uh, in comes this lady with the box of precious ointment, and you know the account and how she anointed his head with it, and uh, the disciples were rather distraught. What a waste. It could have been cashed in and given to the poor. Doesn't that sound like religious people? And uh, verse 9, they said, For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me, for you have the poor always with you. My, if the sociologists could get that through their head. My, it would save us so many tax dollars. And don't think I don't have a heart for the poor. In fact, I don't think anybody has a heart for people that are without means any greater than mine. I can be in a supermarket grocery line and it just tears me up to see a young mother. Uh, peel out that cash when by looking at her you can just see they they haven't got that much so I'm I'm not belittling the poor but what I'm saying is the word of God says you're never going to obliterate the poor they have been part and parcel of the human experience from day one and they will be until the Lord comes and sets everything straight and so here he says it so plainly you will always have the poor but you'll not always have me verse 12 for in that she hath poured out this ointment on my body, she did it for my what? Burial. In other words, what would they do with the, with the body after death? Well, they would anoint it with uh, ointments and uh, perfumes and so forth. And so Jesus says, she's doing this in view of my burial. Well, now, in the light of those verses we just read in Luke and John, did they know what he was talking about? No. Now, the lady that got it, what was her name? Is she named? No. But this lady, I'm not convinced in my mind that she knew why she was putting on a burial ointment. But it is amazing. She is the only one of this inner circle that does not go to the tomb to check out whether he's there or not. So whether the Lord had revealed something to her And that she knew what she was doing here, it's a possibility. And so consequently, she was anointing him for his burial, knowing that he was going to be killed and placed in in the tomb. But whatever. Uh, This gives you something to study again. And so he says in verse 13, Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel... In other words, that he was the Christ. This Jesus of Nazareth was who he said he was. That's the this gospel... "...and it shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this be that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her." And, of course, it's true. Just about everybody in Christendom has heard of this woman who anointed the body of Christ before his death. Well, I'm not going to take all this verse by verse. As I was telling Iris on the way up today, you know, uh, as soon as I get into Acts, it's going to be real easy. These half hours are going to be simple in the same way in, uh, in Paul's letters. But here, as I'm trying to go through the Gospels and, and do it as quickly and yet as uh, in-depth as possible, I can't take the time to just go verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We'd be here for the next ten years. But uh, as an overview now, we, we come through these events in chapter 26, where Judas uh, now makes the deal with the high priest to betray him, We're going to see Jesus foretell, Peter's denying him before the cockpits crow in the early morning light. And then we come into the Garden of Gethsemane experience here in chapter 26, beginning with verse 36. I was just pointing out uh, to Sandy before the class started, I don't know how many Christians or Bible students, however you want to refer to yourselves, realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels, and they deal primarily with his humanity side of everything. John's Gospel deals with his deity, and so you'll find that a lot of the things that are covered in the synoptic Gospels are not mentioned in John. For example, the temptations. The temptations are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're not recorded in John. His agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I mean the agony of it, are recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, but it's not recorded in John's Gospel because that was part of his humanity, of his suffering. And so, just keep some of these things in mind, that all three of the first Gospels touch on a lot of these, whereas John does not. All right, now as we come into his arrest... I think most of you have probably heard as many sermons and lessons on it as I have. You probably know it even better than I do. But I guess the thing I want to point out first and foremost, the human race hasn't changed a bit. Whenever totalitarian governments come on the scene and begin to arrest their people, what time of the day do they almost always choose? Nighttime. Nighttime. 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, why? Because it's a mental thing. You know, it's one thing to have somebody knock on your door in the daylight, but it's something else to have somebody knock on your door in the dark hours of midnight or early morning. It's just a traumatic thing. So, same way here. What time of the day do they choose to arrest him? Nighttime nighttime typical of totalitarian governments and so evidently it was right around midnight I think maybe even a little before because everything that transpires now in this whole process of his arrest and his mock trial all takes place before the early light of dawn remember and so I think the first sign of his arrest here in the garden was probably in the area of midnight and uh you know the account of how Judas had betrayed him and led the soldiers. And here's another amazing thing. Here Jesus was so meek, so compassionate, and yet how many soldiers did they bring to arrest him? Well, must have been at least a hundred, because the, the military term that is used speaks of six hundred. Now, that doesn't say that they all came to make his arrest. But nevertheless, it was a large group of army troops that the Romans and the uh, rulers of Israel had brought together just to arrest him. It's ridiculous. And in the nighttime. And then as Judas comes and introduces him and betrays him, I'd like to bring you all the way to Matthew 26 now, verse 49. And forthwith he came to Jesus, that is, Judas did, and he said, Hail, Master, and he kissed him, which, of course, was the clue. Now, verse 50. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Now, I've told my classes over the years, and told one again just the other night. Do you realize how many times Jesus would respond with a question? Not because he didn't know. He knew why they were there. He knew what Judas is up to. I already told him back at, uh, at the Last Supper. Now, uh, like I say, if I decide to just stay in the three Gospels primarily for this period of lessons, then I think before we go to the Book of Acts, I'll spend at least four programs on the Gospel of John. And when we get into that study, then uh, I'll probably bring out some of the things that took place up there at the Last Supper. Number one. Contrary, again, to what most people think, the Last Supper was not the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb wouldn't have been killed until the next afternoon and then eaten later in the afternoon. And so there was no way that Jesus could have eaten of the Passover lamb. It was simply the Last Supper that he had enjoyed with his disciples. It was not the Passover. Ah, we want to get that straight. And so, now back to verse 50. Verse 50. As Judas kisses him and points him out, Jesus says, what friend? Now, I've always maintained that this term was such a term of endearment. Uh, The margin in some Bibles will even use the word comrade. What was Jesus still extending to this demonic man, Judas? An opportunity to still repent. Judas was not yet given up on, and he gives him that opportunity by addressing him with his term of endearment, and Judas could have at that moment still turned. He could have still not had to suffer the doom that we know now he did.
0: Thank you for joining us again for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. If you'd like to order audio tapes, videos, or any of our printed material, you may do so by writing Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. That's Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. Or you can call us toll-free if you'd like at one 800-369-7856 That's 1-800-369-7856 Remember, this is a faith ministry and your participation with us is greatly appreciated. Again, our address is Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552 And our phone is 1-800-369-7856 Thanks again for listening, and please join us next time for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW proof. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.